Father, we ask that you would bless uh, now the proclamation of your word as we have uh, heard it read, and we pray that uh, you would build us up in our most holy faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. A boat is most free when it is confined, of course, to the lake or to the gulf. Uh, A train is most unrestricted when it is restricted to the tracks. If we were to put a boat or a train out on Lumsden Road, we'd cause a traffic jam. Boats were created to ride the waves. Trains were made to glide along the tracks. Likewise, we were created to live and got live. Um, we were created by God to live in His world. We are created to live free lives, uninhibited by the restraints of sin. But that freedom was to be enjoyed within the limits of God's created order. To jump the tracks of God's created order is to create disorder. It is to reject God's order. So Adam and Eve were created to be the king and the queen of the earth. They were to rule over the birds of the air, over the fish of the seas, and all the animals that live on the earth. They were to exercise rule and dominion over all creatures to the glory of God. But Adam and Eve decided to jump the tracks. They tried to reject the limits of God's rule over them. By eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve attempted to become their own authority. And they attempted to become co-equal with God. Disorder on earth has governed our world ever since. The Lord Jesus Christ, He left the unmitigated glory of heaven to be born into our world specifically to redeem it from the mess that humanity has made of it. He redeemed the world by redeeming a great multitude of people that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. He not only spilled His blood on the cross to purchase forgiveness of sins, but also to restore to us the image of God that was lost at the fall. In Christ, according to Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24, we have been remade. Whereas the image of God was broken by the fall, in Christ we have been recreated in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our soul has been recreated and our thinking has been renewed. Because our soul has been restored, we can now exercise godly wisdom. We are no longer enslaved to a self-centered pattern of thinking and a self-serving lifestyle. In Christ, we have regained the freedom of living life under God's limits but living our life to the limit. We have the freedom of the boats out in the gulf. We have the freedom of the trains gliding along the tracks. 
in Christ, we have the freedom of living life within God's limits to the limit. Now, people outside of Christ, they pursue their own happiness and their own purposes, and it ends up in vanity and emptiness. It is a chasing after wind because, well, they'll die and they'll be forgotten. And as their for, uh, they'll be forgotten as their forebears were and as their descendants will be. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes has made this argument uh, several times in the first seven chapters. But the person who has been restored back into a relationship with God can live for more than just earthly pursuits and purposes. His or her thinking has been elevated. A Christian's pursuits and purposes take God into account. A Christian is able to live like we were intended to live before sin entered the world. Now, in Christ, we can obey God. Now, in Christ, we can live under His limits and, and live it, live our lives to the fullest by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Christ said you can do all things because He gives you strength. We can live life to the limit, under the limits of God's created order. And this is true freedom. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 uh, who is who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. A person who looks to God for godly wisdom lives above the vanity and the emptiness of a life without God. A Christian can experience the true joy and the true satisfaction that humanity was intended to possess all along. I'm speaking about living life under limits because of what Solomon says in verses 2 uh, through 8. Adam and Eve tried to throw off God's authority and we, being their descendants, have a continual temptation to do likewise. Human beings do not naturally love to submit to the authority of another person unless we can turn it to our advantage somehow or another. Children like the safety and security of their parents' watch care, but throughout their childhood, they have outbursts of selfish independence. And teenagers have a well-deserved reputation for rebelling against their parents. Teenagers, I'm not talking down to you. I was a teen myself. I know exactly that temptation. And I grieved my parents um, in my rebellion. And if the congregation will allow me just for a couple of moments, to run down a short rabbit trail with our teens. I understand the temptation to try and shake off the loving authority of your parents. But you must understand, 
when you shake off their authority, you are submitting yourself to another authority. Our lives, by definition, are lived under limits. When you reject your parents' loving authority, you are submitting to authority to an authority that doesn't uh, necessarily care for you. In fact, here's one of my pet peeves. Oftentimes, teens want to explore life. They want to test boundaries uh, and think for themselves. I get that. I understand that. That's probably a, a healthy part of growing up. But invariably, when they break the bounds of their parents' loving authority in their lives, it seems as if they... Um, are all too willing then to submit themselves to worldly thinking that requires their thoughts to submit to political correctness. Why would you give up loving oversight to give yourself over to groupthink where peer pressure and worldly acceptance rule your thinking? That doesn't make sense. Under your parents' authority, there's freedom. Under your parents' authority, there's loving watch care. There is the protection of messing up without messing up too badly. Because your parents have, have uh, given you uh, boundaries. But all too often our young people, when they break free, of their parents' authority. They run right into the, to the, uh, the slavery of this group thing that is not, uh, freedom at all. Pursuing wisdom that is built on group think and peer pressure, well, that won't make your face shine as, uh, Solomon talks about here in verse 1, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. Now, I'm not too fond of talking about politics from the pulpit. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ alone is our King and our Lord. But Solomon brings us face to face with our obligations to the earthbound governing authorities who exercise rule and authority in the political sphere. Um, sometimes I think maybe we should wade more into the local and national, even uh, international political realities of our times because, truth be told, increasingly everything is being viewed from a political point of view. Marriage. Childbirth. Child-rearing, education, economics, energy policies, national defense, health care, science, jurisprudence, religion, and even now sports are being viewed through a political prism. It's like we can't ex escape uh, and have a, a few minutes time of recreation without... Uh, entering into uh, the political sphere or the political sphere being pushed down upon us. If 
you're a Republican, there are expectations for how you view life. Likewise, if you're a Democrat, there are expectations of how you uh, view life, how you think about things, how you view things, how you speak about things. We have the mind of Christ. We are to think Christianly about the issues of life. We are to think Christianly about marriage, about childbirth, about child-rearing, about science, about education, about um, even national defense, health care, and, and, uh, and on and on. Political bromides, political cliches must not rule our thinking. And certainly must not rule our living. And so we're also to think Christianly about politics. We're to think Christianly about worldly government. So what does it mean to think Christianly about worldly government? Because of the fall of mankind, we need government in order to keep order in the world. Because of the presence of sin, we need laws to create boundaries. We need a justice system. We need the police. We need a standing military. Otherwise, we would be uh, life would be unlivable. There would be no order. Chaos and disorder would govern all of life. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those exist; those that that those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval for he, talking about government, uh, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And Paul continues. So, we are to be submissive to the governing authorities. You'll see this in verse 2 in a few moments. But we also need to understand that the governing authorities are part of our fallen creation. They will invariably abuse their power. And so Solomon alludes to this in verse 9 as he's talking about uh, submission to the government. He says, All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. It's tempting to treat with contempt the laws that the lawgivers the lawmakers make when they seem to be exempting themselves from those laws. And so Solomon says in verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Going on, verse 3, do not be hasty to go from his presence. This is the idea of leaving the king's presence. If you left the king's presence too too quickly, it would be a sign of disrespect. And you would not want to disrespect the king 
when the king back in those days had all the authority. So it says, be be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of, of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, but the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And so here he's talking about submission to those who are in authority over you. And he uses specifically the king as an example, as his rule and authority over you uh, in the ancient Near East was absolute. And so he says in verse 5 that uh, whoever keeps a command, specifically whoever keeps the king's command, will know no evil thing. There's benefits in obeying the laws of the land. This is not an absolute promise, but it's a valid principle. Generally speaking, if you are submitting to the laws of the land, submitting to the rule of law, it'll keep you safer. You'll be in a position, a better position to receive blessing than if you were living outside the the limits of the laws of the land. Now, a person can choose to live outside the limits of the law. Solomon recognizes this. So he wants to warn the, the lawless person that even though they can live outside the laws of the land, even though they can live outside the authority of the king, even though a child can live outside the authority of the loving authority of the parent, um, they cannot live outside the limits of death. Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man once to die. No one can escape that, that appointment. We don't know the day of that appointment, but we do know it is coming. So, consider how you are living. Consider the choices you are making if you are living outside the limits of the authorities that God has placed over, over you, or if you were living outside the limits of God's authority over your life. In light of this, then, Solomon considers to consider the burial of the wicked. And apparently, Solomon had some uh, specific people in mind. Maybe a, a specific group of people. Maybe... He had recently attended a funeral of someone he knew to be wicked. And so in verse 11, he says, I'm sorry, verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So they were going in and out of the holy place. They were praised among the citizens of, uh, of the city, presumably of Jerusalem. These were church-going people. Outwardly speaking, they were doing some good things, worthy of praise by the people in the city. But they were living 
in hypocrisy. They were living wicked lives outside of God's authority. And so they had apparently died and they were buried and now they must face God. Have you ever wondered how someone who confesses to believe in God can live an ungodly life with little or no regard for the fact that they will stand before God and give account for their life? I don't think that they that the wicked woke up one day and decided to live an ungodly life. I don't I, I think there's a progression for a person as they become more and more wicked. They sinned one time and there was no evident consequence. So they did it again, still no noticeable consequences, and so they expanded the limits of their behavior. And still no penalties. Wow! I'm getting away with it. And their desires eventually became a lifestyle bent only on evil. And so Solomon says in verses 11 through 13, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. We need to remember that God is a just God. He will bring everything under the brilliant light of His justice. The very last verse in the book of Ecclesiastes says that God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. The Apostle Paul builds on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is done for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So don't be mistaken. God is not forgetful. Just because God is patient with us, it is is no excuse for living a wicked life. I want you to consider 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. This should be one of those verses that you tuck away in your memory bank. The Apostle Paul says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. In other words, people know about them now. But the sins of others appear later at the judgment. Are there choices you are making today that you will have to answer for later on the day of judgment? While the wicked are making godless choices with no seeming consequences, it's tempting for the righteous then to look at them with envy. The wicked are not just escaping consequences, they are thriving. The person who stabbed you in the back at work got the promotion you were hoping to get. The student who looked on your test 
while you were taking an exam and cheated off your paper, got an A, while somehow you managed to get a C- while he was cheating off your paper. Life doesn't seem fair. Where's God in all this? Well, Solomon acknowledged the reality in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. It surprises us when the wicked thrive while the wicked su- or while the righteous suffer. It's, uh, it surprises us when the wicked are not punished, but the righteous live a life of uh, continual suffering. Sorry, I don't mean to keep pointing to this side as being the wicked and this side as the righteous. I noticed I was doing that. Um, but if the shoe fits, no. <laughs> um, psalm 73 uh, is a psalm where the psalmist is spends the first half of the psalm saying, God, the wicked, they live long lives. They have wealth. They have everything you could possibly ever need. And the righteous are suffering um, at, at their hands. Lord, it doesn't seem right. And it says he all, his feet almost slipped until he came into the sanctuary of God and understood their end. God knows the inequities of life. He will sort everything out. Every wrong will be made right. As we come to the end of this passage, just to summarize real quickly, God calls you to live a wise life. That means you'll need to live within the limits and bounds that God has set. It also means that you'll need to live within the limits and bounds that the various authorities have set for you as well. Whether it's your parents, whether it's your boss, whether it's your government. And while you live your life, don't get sidetracked into wickedness. Temptations abound. Be wise. See the temptations for what they are. Flee from them because they will bring you great harm. Even if they don't bring you great harm the first time you do it, the second time you do it, or the fifth time you do it. And don't get disturbed by the prosperity of the wicked. God is just. This passage has a lot of don't do this, don't do that. Where's the positive in this passage? All the positives are summed up in verse 15. And so he says in uh, our final verse in this, um, for our consideration this morning, he says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In other words, Solomon tells us, live a joyful life. I commend you joy, he says. When you have a relationship with God, life is good. 
Your bank account might not be as full as you'd like it to be. Your health may be a constant struggle. Your family may be a mess. Your boss might be a tyrant. But with, but with God, life is good. You've got food, you've got drink, and you've got God. So live your life to the limit. That's what Solomon is saying here in verse 15. Live under God's limits. Keep the train of, of your life on God's tracks. But live your life to the limit. Enjoy life. Enjoy God. He loves you so much that He sent His Son here to this earth to suffer and bleed and die in your behalf. He sent His Son to the cross to do everything necessary for you to have a relationship with Him. You know, I follow a couple of guys on Twitter. Uh, these guys, they just they have an interesting, unique perspective on life. And I enjoy uh, seeing their comments as they pop up from time to time. Well, these guys um, are big fans of, of President Trump, especially his economics. So the stock market hits a new high, and they um, they post this video, or uh, unemployment numbers go down. They post this video, or job confidence statistics spike upward, and they post this video. And the videos that they post are clips of what they the Trump train, not pushing President Trump. I'm just simply painting the picture for you, because. I do enjoy these videos. These videos are big, fast locomotives bounding across a, a long, big meadow, or they're uh, a train chugging over a mountain path. Or my favorite is when the train um, plows right through a big uh, bank of snow, of just fresh powder, and the snow goes everywhere. All the while, there's this fast, powerful music playing in the background and the train seems unstoppable the reason i'm telling you this is that's how solomon is telling us to live our lives we're to stay on the tracks as we live unstoppable lives for christ with god our lives are to barrel along with unrelenting joy with abiding trust in him all for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that You would give us that unstoppable joy, that abiding trust in Christ, that we would live the lives that we were created to live, that we would live the lives that we were recreated in Christ to live. Lord, I ask that... Uh, that You um, help us to press forward, knowing that in every circumstance, in every step we take in life, God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? Christ is our King. He is our Lord. Help us to live lives, wise, godly lives, with the joy of God, going before us. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.